Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Before we start today's show, here's an important announcement. Open City is seeking an educator to work across our young people's programs supporting children and teenagers to learn about city making and pursue careers in design and the built environment. Visit our website, open-city.org.uk, for more information. Now, on with the show. Architects issue an open letter to design journalists over the climate crisis. Conservationists' listing bid for Peckham Library rebuffed. Residents with communal heating see energy bills soar by 350% and big changes approved for two iconic 1980s London locations. My name is Finn Harper. I'm an architecture critic and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's UK architecture, housing and city making news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Hugh Pearman. Hugh is an architecture critic, incoming chair of the Heritage Campaign Group 20th Century Society and an author of the new book About Architecture, an essential guide in 55 buildings. The author, in fact, not an author. The, the only, the, the one and author. only. Yeah, here yeah, he is no, in the studio. I'm not anybody else in. How are you doing, Hugh? I'm very well, thank you very much. The campaign group Architects Declare, founded in 2019 by some of the UK's most high-profile architects, has issued an open letter to the design media over concerns about how the climate crisis is being covered. The letter questions whether the UK's design journalists, such as me, Merlin Fulcher, the regular host of this show, and indeed Hugh are doing enough to prevent widespread environmental collapse and calls for a constructive discussion on the role of the media in addressing a planetary emergency. The letter emphasises the responsibility shared by both designers and the media in shaping a sustainable future, saying, quote, Our children's generation are likely to view climate change as the most serious crime ever committed against poorer nations and future generations. We should therefore be prepared for the question that will surely come, what did you do when you knew? It also argues that the media's coverage of new technologies must be more critical, considering their potential impact on the transition to a safer future. The letter claims a failure to do so could trigger a new wave of unsustainable consumerism, going on to say, quote, Within a paradigm of conventional sustainability, 3D printing could easily result in us drowning in tons of consumerist crap, whereas within a regenerative mindset, it could be transformative, allowing us to use the right materials and assemble them in ways that facilitate perfect circularity, end quote. 
The open letter furthermore extends its scrutiny to design awards, which are a popular mainstay of the media industry, challenging organisers to assess whether their judging criteria perpetuate problematic aspects of the status quo or contribute meaningfully to addressing the planetary emergency. So, Hugh, what is all this about? Does Architects Declare have a valid point to call out the architectural and design media such as this show, your former stomping ground, the RIBA Journal and others? Or are they focusing on the wrong target, giving way too much credit to these niche design magazines when they should really be focusing on the actual construction industry? The actual construction industry is, of course, where the... Uh and you know, government legislation is where it is where it's at. Um, I was intrigued by this announcement, um, and I looked back at what's been going on to maybe bring it forward. Um, I get the impression that there was a sense that some of the wind was going out of the sails of Architects Declare. Someone had a go at them. I think it's one of their own, so it hurt a bit. And so they, it sounds to me like they sat down and thought. Okay, we need to up our game. Um, to up our game, we need to get more coverage in the media. Maybe we should get the media on side a little bit more than we have at the moment. Um, I'm not sure that announcement does that terribly <laughs> well because it's a bit hectoring, isn't it? Uh, but on the other hand, you can't say they're wrong. Um, I mean, yes, we all do have a responsibility to uh, to promulgate the message and to showcase best practice um, I mean, it, and, it, and stuff like that so, so that's that, that's undeniable and, and so it's one of these things where i think on the one hand you know don't tell me what to do on the other hand well actually yes perhaps they've got a point here yeah i mean you were um architectural design critic the sunday times for, mm -hmm. for many years uh you've written for the guardian the observer the wall street journal new york times other places as well the spectator i think is one of your uh on your your publishers you know how in the past have, have the design media treated green issues and are things changing there's a difference between consumer media and professional media so for instance you mentioned the sunday times yeah hardly came into it at all um I was just thinking about this last night, thinking, what did you do in the war, Daddy? Yes, well, what I did in the war was uh, back in the early 90s, I was looking at Brian Short's buildings, things like naturally ventilated buildings at the University of Leicester, for instance. That was a key one, wasn't it? Uh, and the Contact Theatre in Manchester. Him and Max Fordham were doing these naturally mm. ventilated buildings, trying, trying to get away from that mindset of, of, of artificial cooling all the time. And in the early 90s, that was, that was, that was quite something. But why would I have done that? at the Sunday Times because that had an, a really big impact on the visual character of those buildings. That's what Short did and does. And so I was doing aesthetics and that then fed into the aesthetics. They, they, they made a, a very big thing of that. So when it came into, you know, when it swam into our consciousness, that was a thing. But I couldn't say at all that, you know, I had a manifesto going on there. Papers like the Sunday Times back then, they would have had a, 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 an environment correspondent, they would have had a planning correspondent, and then at the soft end of the paper, they would have had me, architecture critic, and so I was dealing with aesthetics. That was mm, that. Mm. The letter specifically criticises the media's um, portrayal of new technologies and stresses the significant role that the media plays in influencing the design that is then based around those new technologies. And it does sort of feel to me that sometimes kind of wacky new technology or, or technological ideas are sometimes given um, rather too much airtime uh, before they've really been sort of tried and tested, before before there's much proof that they are a good idea or that they, they will work. Do you think it's fair to blame journalists reporting on technology for 
maybe overly credulous designers then incorporating that technology into their projects and then it doesn't actually work and we, we've wasted yet more time in this crisis. We all want the uh, miracle cure, don't we? Whether it's a miracle cure for disease or a miracle cure for um, climate change. And so therefore, if someone comes up with something which looks shiny and attractive and actually a techno fix... We are, I think, almost instinctively inclined to to give it some credibility and to and to do it, but you do have to put in that cold dose of reality. There was uh, an announcement by uh, the government yesterday by the uh, energy minister uh, Grant Shapps, where he was talking about uh, money he was putting into a scheme to uh, generate solar power in space and uh, beam it back down to Earth oh and thus God. get a, a, a great deal more solar energy that way. And it may well be a, a, a technology which is which is worth pursuing. Um, it sounds uh, a way off yet. But in the meantime, there's a whole load of houses which need insulating. There's a whole load of heat pumps which need installing. Uh, stuff like that, which obviously is boring to a politician looking for headlines, but is what needs to be done. So I'm not saying you should have one or the other. I'm saying that, you know, be sceptical. Don't be cynical, be sceptical. Mm. It feels to me like design journalists, by definition aren't going to report on insulation upgrades every single day. They have to find new angles. They have to... The, the news has to be new. Like, it's it's sort of the clue is in the name. And I, I wondered if I could ask you a bit about PR because some of the very same architecture practices whose teams have written this letter criticising the media are also pumping huge sums of money into PR um, precisely in order to seduce and court the media and build hype and uh, promote themselves with these new stories, this kind of treadmill of uh, new and exciting stories. So where is where is PR in all of this, public relations? Is it ultimately that industry that maybe is responsible for this kind of cycle of uh, slightly hyperbolic um, stories that distract us from, from the, the core issues? They've got a job to do. Uh, and the main job they've got to do is to make this attractive and appealing. That was the thing which Tim Smith always said down at the Eden Project in Cornwall. He said, don't make people feel guilty. No one's going to come if all we're going to do is make them feel guilty. What we've got to do is give a positive message and make them feel good about it. And I think that that's probably, not probably, certainly the way forward, and that these people who do employ these these PR firms, and a lot of practices have got a marketing budget, there's some good smaller PR firms out there who are aware of this, they need to, and those firms need to tell their clients that this is a story we need to tell, but we're the experts. We're good at this kind of stuff. Now, we are going to make this appealing. Now, at the uh, old stager here, um, not me, Norman Foster, um, he's got this huge show on at the Pompidou Centre in Paris, which he has framed as, I've always been an eco-architect. Now, that you can sort of take issue with various aspects of that, but I would, I suppose, for the, uh, for the, for the defence, say that actually, yes, his Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank in Hong Kong, building from the early, late 80s, early 90s, when was it, long time ago, was a very pioneering building when it came to getting its cooling directly from the seawater in the bay outside. And they went to a great deal of expense to do that. And, and the sun reflector 
daylight, bringing daylight into the interior stuff. Actually, that building was pretty much of, a, of an amazing eco building, even though it was the most expensive building in the world, that its components were shipped from all over the globe, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. But mm. nonetheless, over time, it's always that thing about, you know, the longer a building lasts, the better it becomes. And in the case of its energy usage, that's been amazing over there. So, you know, he can, to some extent, point to that. In other cases, well, maybe not so much, but there you are. So if he's able to frame himself in those terms for an absolutely massive show at the Pompidou Centre, then I, I find that very encouraging, actually, even though, yes, you can you can carp, but if he can do it, anyone can do it, really, and, and, and start to use that message. And, yeah, these buildings do look great. And, by the way, they're energy positive, that sort of thing. So the AJ reported that John Gummer, who's the government's top climate advisor, told um, the EcoCity Summit, which happened um, in London last week, that every planning application should meet net zero. Uh, apparently, he said, quote, the new planning acts have got to have an overall statement that no planning permission may be given, no planning permission may be given without consideration for the government's commitment to net zero and national obligations. Hugh, can any of the changes proposed in this letter make any meaningful difference without change at the government and corporate level? No. I'll give you an example. It's not even just government and corporate level, it's local government level, and that's where a lot of this stuff happens. I'll give you an excellent example. Purely by coincidence, yesterday I came across it, a local authority up in Derbyshire have got a redundant school. There's a nice old school building and there's a sort of 60s school building, and that's all the usual thing. But the whole school is redundant and they want to turn it into other uses and so forth. Uh, I think it was only yesterday that uh, the council, and let's name them Amber Valley District Council, gave planning permission just to demolish the 60s part of that school. Wow. Not because there was um, um, a, a new building proposed, but just in order to make the site more attractive to developers. And I thought... Amber Valley District Council, let's just have a look at their sustainability uh, statement. And, of course, they're committed to net zero by 2030. Of course they are. So there's that disjunct, isn't there, between the two things. On the one hand, yes, we have this policy. On the other hand, it's an eyesore, knock it down. Yeah. I think my take on this whole letter thing is that um, maybe professionals in the industry put too much emphasis on on the media and on journalism because it feels like a really important thing to them personally and to their careers and it's this sort of glamorous part of the sector that they're in but actually it would be far more effective if you if you want to sort of change the way that journalists use language to focus on places like my london which recently published sort of the ugliest buildings in all thir- the 33 ugliest buildings in the 33 London boroughs. I think it's that sort of low-level, dull, local, insidious drip of negativity that leads to things being demolished. It's not. It's not the AJ. It's not oh, no. Rebirth oh, no. oh, no. Journal. It's it's it, it, it's dirty. Knock it down. Yeah. Yeah. Why yeah. not clean it? Oh no, no. Knock it down. Our next story was sent in by a listener who drew our attention to the looming crisis facing the 480,000 households served by communal heat networks across the country. According to a recent article in The Guardian, residents in London who share communal heating systems have been hit with a staggering service charge rise of up to 350% off the back of last year's energy price increases. 
Since buildings with heat networks typically purchase energy in advance, the impact of last winter's price rises only became apparent at the start of the new financial year, leaving residents in a precarious position faced with bills £300 per month more than they were expecting. Compounding the issue, the government's previous provision of £400 per household to mitigate the impact of these rising prices during the winter is no longer available, which is exacerbating the situation faced by low-income families with heat networks. Startling figures released by the Social Market Foundation reveal that one in 25 households nationwide rely on heat networks, while one in 12 social housing units depend on communal heating, underscoring the disproportionate effect that all of this is having on vulnerable households. Simon Francis, a representative from End Fuel Poverty Coalition, expressed deep concern, stating, quote, a lot of people on heat networks are among the most vulnerable households. They deserve greater protection from the worst of the energy crisis, not least because they do not have the ability to switch supplier. It's incredibly concerning to see these people facing huge increases in their bills. So my, my sister's in this, this situation. She lives in a, a big council block. Uh, the whole block has one massive boiler rather than every, everyone having their own boiler. In theory, that should be more efficient and, and cheaper. But in fact, it seems to be having the exact opposite effect. And um, the, the most poor and the most vulnerable of her neighbours are being hit with these c- colossal bills. So, you know... Hugh, this feels really shocking. Uh, it also feels like there's not been that much coverage of it, especially compared to the the, the kind of furore in the, the media around uh, heating bills last year. Why is this not more of a scandal? Uh, why is it not being addressed more widely by the media? Don't ask me, Finn. It is a scandal. Uh, one of the things in there, which I, when I was look, reading through it, um, mentioned the fact that the uh, the service agents who basically take the service charge and take the uh, um, uh, the fuel bills and stuff like that, they whack a percentage on top, which is basically their fee. And it, whether it's the, that agent is the council or whether it's a, a private organisation, because this applies, by the way, to private blocks as well as to uh, as well mm. as to council blocks. But um, if energy bills go up massively and someone's taking a 16% commission on top, they're taking 16% of something which they haven't done anything for, which I think is totally scandalous that they're allowed to do that. Uh, That did come up in one of the cases which I was reading up on this. Another thing which came up was the, the, the fact that the amount of money they take in service charges as opposed to the amount of money which is spent on the estate the mismatch there, uh, and in some estates, I think that the uh, the amount taken is much more than the amount being spent in maintenance. I don't know because I'm not a local government expert, but what that tells me is that this money is not ring fenced. By and large, um, financial organisations uh, in the public sector hate ring fenced funds. Um, the Treasury hates it. They call it hypothecated taxation. They don't like money being reserved for one specific thing. They want a great big pool of money they can spend on anything. Sounds to me, and I don't know, it sounds to me like the service charge money is just going into the general council pot. Yeah, well, let's, let's dig into that because um, uh, there has been sort of new news around this. So Nunhead Estate Tenants and Residents Association recently exposed the fact that in a number of cases, service charges, not just at their estate, but various states in London were generating massive surpluses. So sort of, as you say, money uh, being charged to residents, uh, supposedly for essential services, was being 
not spent on those services and is, is being spent somewhere else or, or maybe just banked. So according to a, a, the Freedom of Information investigations that this residence association conducted, uh, Achilles Road in Lewisham generated a £2.6 million pound um, in, in rent and service charges over six years, but saw only £239,000 spent on maintenance. And similarly, Central Hill Estate in Lambeth generated £7 million over five years, uh, but only £1 million was spent on maintenance. So, you know, maybe we have to speculate, but what on earth is going on here? Councils often say um, that the reason essential maintenance is not being undertaken is from a lack of funding. And yet... These FOIs would seem to suggest that actually there's there's quite a lot of money coming in from those estates. It's just not getting reinvested in in the in the in that maintenance. What one would like to think was that they're operating sinking fund policy. In other words, that they would know that there's a massive. We're going to have to scaffold the whole estate. We're going to have to do all the windows. We're going to have to do all the roofs. That's going to cost millions and millions and millions of pounds. Luckily, we've amassed this sinking fund, which will pay for that. Now that would be the logical thing to do. It'd be nice to think that was the case that this money just wasn't vanishing down the cracks everywhere. On the other side of things, you can say, actually, this is a, a, fuel, emergen- a fuel poverty emergency for the people living there. This would be a good time to release some of those funds to alleviate that while that continues to be an emergency. You know, mm. I know that energy prices are, we all know that energy prices are actually sort of drifting lower now after the sort of huge shock of the start of the, of the, of, of the war in Europe. Plans by Ben Adams Architects to retrofit and expand the iconic Minerva House, a 1980s office building next to London Bridge, have been approved by Southwark Council, as reported in the AJ this week. The decision gives the Southwark-based practice the go-ahead to transform the landmark symbol of 1980s Dockland regeneration, originally designed by Twig Brown and Partners and formerly home to Grindley's Bank, into an eight-storey office block. The revamp will add two floors and increase the building's internal floor space. Meanwhile, north of the river, Camden Council has approved Piercing Company's proposal for a major regeneration of Camden Lock Market, which will add exhibition space, shop fronts, a canal jetty and a 40-metre-high Ferris wheel. The scheme for market owners LabTech was submitted for planning approval in September 2022 and has proved divisive, receiving more than 160 objections. Critics of the designs, which include the Camden Railways Heritage Trust, Friends of Regents Canal and the Tenants and Residents Association of Camden Town, Tract, have raised concerns over the noise and disruption of the development, the effect on gentrification in the area, and one even described the scheme as, quote, not very Camden in character. I wonder what that means. The 70-strong Camden-based practice has been working on proposals for the famous market for nearly nine years, and Piercy & Co. founding director Stuart Piercy told the AJ that his firm had produced, quote, countless study models to develop a scheme that would be sensitive to the historic fabric and relevant to the way that the market wants to work in the future. Hugh, you are the incoming chair of the 20th Century Society, so I imagine you'll be getting lots of kind of questions a bit like this over the coming years. But Camden Lock is famous for its place in kind of countercultural movements of the 70s and the 80s. What do you make of the area now? Has the character of Camden already been lost? Do you like Pearson Co.'s latest proposals? What's your kind of take on all of this? Well, now, Finn, you see, I'm quite old, and I remember going to Camden Lock uh, as a child to get on the boat which went along to London Zoo, uh, because that's where it started. It was called Jason's Trip, and this boat called Jason actually is still there. And then it started in the middle of basically an industrial area of wharfs. Uh, Then the 
When I came to live in London, Camden Market was a place to go. I had friends who had stalls on Camden Market and they just went off in their car in the morning and they had a box full of clothes they'd made and they'd sell them standing in a box from their trestle table in uh, at Camden Lock. And I suspect that that is what people want it to go back to being, but it can't happen because it never does happen. You can't freeze a moment or, uh, in the life of a city like that. It doesn't work because if it's going to gentrify, it's going to gentrify. It's, it's these, I don't know how it came into the ownership of the particular current owners, but it's a retail centre. That's what it is. And obviously they want, if they're not stupid, they will want to keep as much of the character of that very strangely kind of jumbly place as much as they possibly can. Um, but at the same time, I don't know what they're paying in rates and business rates and stuff like that. I would imagine a great deal more than used to be the case. So as for the physical proposals there, um, Pierce's, I've looked at his scheme, schemes over the years. He has stuck with this. I suspect a lot of the attention will be on this on this Ferris wheel thing. Uh, and it is absolutely true when the critics say, oh, well, it's getting a, got a licence for, for five years, but it might be there forever. Well, of course, that's the trick they pulled on the South Bank. That was a temporary planning permission, which then became a permanent planning permission. So, you know, it's not as if we haven't got precedent for that. Uh, I don't mind the Ferris wheel there. It's a little black thing. It's, it, as I say, it's, it, it, it's conventional. It's all right. Uh, I, in fact, I quite like the idea of, of there being a bit of a fairground atmosphere in that market. Seems to me that's quite a good thing to have. I wouldn't object to that at all. I think yes. that I, I think it does sort of, you know, when, when it all starts to become chain stores, that's when you, you think that's when a place dies, really. And I don't know whether that's happened yet. Uh, you know, I'm 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 from the Midlands, and so uh, as a kind of um, rebellious wannabe countercultural teenager, you know, you you want your nipple piercings or your new rocks. You either go up to the Oasis Market in Brum, uh, or you'd go down to uh, Camden Market in London, and you know, you get the Chiltern line either way. But you end up at sort of this kind of uh, same place, this kind of gothic, grungy, fuzzy, chaotic market life environment where you could get all the sort of stuff that wasn't necessarily um, available at you know Gap or H&M or, or Top Man or whatever. And I guess, you know, maybe I sort of am a bit more sympathetic to change than some of the, the critics of these schemes, but it does kind of burn my soul uh, a little bit that Britain seems to be so bad at uh, losing its kind of independent uh, shops. And we, we do seem to end up with with high, high street chains, you know, Starbucks and whatever, kind of absolutely dominating uh, all over the country. Uh, I just feel like we're kind of uniquely bad uh, for this. Uh, maybe it's to do with the price of land and a kind of rent crisis. The, these independent shops just can't kind of compete with those big high street names for, for, for renting floor space. But be of good cheer, Finn, because what you find is because of the death of the high street, um, the independent traders are moving back in in a lot of market towns. Now, some high streets just die. Um, other towns actually seize the opportunity. So uh, it's a very a totally fascinating moment of change in retail at the moment. I, there's a whole different discussion to be had about retail. Sticking with this theme of buildings and protecting buildings from getting knocked down, a bid to list Allsop and Stormer's 2000 Sterling Prize winning Peckham Library has failed, despite concerns over new plant equipment being installed on its roof. So in a decision dating back to January, but which only came to light last week, Historic England has refused to 
consider campaign group the 20th Century Society's request to grant grade two-star listed status to the quirky library on stilts by Will Alsop. The heritage watchdog told the AJ that the South London Library was not assessed because the building completed in 2000 was, quote, not under serious threat of demolition and major alteration and would not normally be considered for listing as it has yet to stand the test of time. Meanwhile, the campaign group is celebrating some positive news for Michael Hopkins and Partners Inland Revenue Centre in Nottingham, which has recently been awarded Grade 2 listed status by Historic England. The move follows a joint campaign led by the Nottingham Civic Society and the 20th Century Society, who together launched a bid to protect the pioneering 30-year-old office campus, which was the first commercial UK building to receive a Briam Excellent Sustainability Rating. So, Hugh, uh, Peckham Library first. Uh, should it be listed and why? It will be listed. Um, it's just a matter of when. Um, I mean, this was by way of a, of a, a statement of intent. There are a number, a lot of buildings which were constructed around about the millennium, this was a bit before, which are coming towards us. The best of those uh, are going to be listed. And because of the, 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 the millennial impulse, there was actually quite a number of quite adventurous and ambitious buildings. This was one of them uh, being done around that time. So what... The reason for sort of uh, putting in uh, Peckham for listing was because, you know, we had heard uh, of alterations, good, positive alterations, uh, in the sense that they are wanting to improve the environmental performance of the building. They're wanting to put heat pumps on the, on the roof, uh, in this case. We wanted to be sure that in making those changes, they weren't going to wreck the building, basically, such that when its time came to be listed, people go, oh, no, you can't list that because, look, it's been buggered about too much, you know. So they are making the right noise, is, is, is all I can say um, on that one. But it's, it, it's really a statement of intent, you know. Be careful with these um, showpiece buildings from that period because they're going to be coming up to their 30-year... 25, 30 years. I feel like I'm getting a sort of insight into the sort of tactics and strategies of heritage campaigners in, in how you work with these listing authorities over time. You want to show, yes, I mean, it's, it's, not, a, it's not a secret. I mean, you, you want to show that a building is valued. Just staying silent, actually, in those circumstances, is not enough. You want to go, oi. You know, we think this building is listable. So uh, am I right that you're saying that the 20th Century Society sort of always knew that the Peckham Library wasn't going to get listed, but you, you put in for it anyway to kind of keep them on their toes. Is, is that what's going on here? At any time, there's a kind of percentage probability, isn't there? I, and I can't honestly say what the percentage probability there would have been. Um, it was necessary to draw attention to the fact that there were alterations being made, to this, which had won the Sterling Prize, apart from anything else, um, back in the day. Um, and so... It's a difficult one, but you have to make the attempt on buildings which you think are worth it and will be worth it a few short years into the future. What you don't want to be doing is no hope cases where you know you don't stand a chance in hell. So that's why I started off by saying it will be listed. But the Nottingham building has been listed. So what do you think the difference is? Change of use. So, yeah, I mean, pioneering. And we say this a lot, but at least I'm not saying iconic. Um... That was Hopkins in his passive natural ventilation phase, but in this case it's done with all kinds of clever little sort of um, devices, but mostly passive, uh, but also um, using uh, the mass of the building to, to cool itself. And that was back in 1993 mm. that was designed. Um, so 
It's 30 years since it was first designed. There is a thing called the 30-year rule in uh, when it comes to listing buildings. Actually, there's a, there's a number of buildings, including a, a cafe by Willowsop in Jersey, which was listed younger than that. If they're seen as being under threat, then actually they can be listed sooner than that 30-year um, period. So that's why it was, uh, it was worth um, giving it a go on, on Peckham Library. Nottingham, however... It tells you something about how the way these things are done. Why isn't the inland revenue in there anymore? Well, it's because it was done on some sort of private, public-private deal and their lease was up, and so the inland revenue moved somewhere else cheaper and then the building was empty. So I was completely delighted when the University of Nottingham said, yeah, we'd like to use that as part of our campus. I think what a perfect building mm. for a university campus that would make. And I think that the application for listing and the acceptance of listing it at grade two... What that was saying was that there were changes in the offing for this building, which is a very valuable, almost historically valuable building in that um, move towards ecological architecture. And um, we just want to make sure that you're aware of the value of the building so that you don't actually come along and sort of break holes in it or, or whatever. I think the fact that it's listed grade two, it's a building which deserves at least grade two star, I think, in my view. Upper, upper, upper notch is because that's acknowledging the fact that changes will have to be made, obviously, in order for it to become a university. But look, it's been done. There was that uh, Herman Miller factory down in Bath by Grimshaw, which has become part of Bath University. A lot of changes needed, but you look at it now and it's just brilliant. So it can be done. That 30 year rule is kind of fascinating. So if I'm understanding correctly, to get something listed, if it's older than 30 years, is a lot easier than if it's younger than 30 years, um, right? But f from an ecological point of view, that kind of doesn't make any sense at all. You know, we should be kind of protecting things, knocking something down straight after it's being built seems kind of crazy. So why is it easier to get something listed if, it, if it's older? And, and maybe does that need to be uh, revised in light of the climate emergency? I think it does, because it is a purely aesthetic definition, the quality of the architecture is assessed. Now, obviously, for recent buildings, you're slightly going ahead of, of, of public understanding of these things because the recent past is always the hardest to justify. So, you know, why are you listing that eyesore of a concrete building? Well, because it's a very good concrete building, that's why. But it takes a while. I mean, you know, we, we, all, we all remember that, you know, Victorian buildings used to be despised. You know, they were ugly, they were dirty, knocked them down. Same language is used of brutalist buildings today. So we're, we're familiar with that. But yes, you're quite right, because the argument for listing is uh, nearly always done on aesthetic grounds. Sometimes it's done on historical grounds. In other words, you know, very important people may have been in that building. When I said that the Nottingham Building by Hopkins is a pioneering um, sustainable building. That's a new thing. And I don't think that's something which has been considered particularly up until this point. Uh, and I'm not even sure I'd have to look at the listing notice as to whether it was mentioned as a, 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 as a reason for listing it. I would like to think it was and that it would be so more in the future. But it comes back to that point I made earlier about yeah, there's buildings which can be listed, but what about the good ordinary ones, which are not listable, but are a resource to be to be reused? That's where you need that legislation in uh, 
in place. Well, this topic takes us on very nicely to the final section of the show, which is the culture section, because the 20th Century Society is putting on an exhibition called British Cooling Towers Sculptural Giants. It's at the Margaret Howell flagship shop, which is at 34 Wigmore Street, and it chronicles the silent and sculptural beauty of our cooling towers. Um, so, I, I, you know, maybe I can hand the mic over to you, Hugh. Um, you are of the show. It, it's already open. It runs until the 18th of June. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's part of the London Festival of Architecture. It's a lovely little show, actually. I went there yesterday to look at it, um, and I thought, oh, this will just... It's very kind of, uh, of Margaret Howell to host this, host this exhibition on behalf of the 20th Century Society. All throughout... It's, it's not a huge store, but it's all throughout the store amongst the racks of clothes and the lovely tables of china and a, and a mid-century furniture and stuff like that, you've got these a rather nice little exhibition um, talking about almost like a, a lost world. And the lost world is the world of the Central Electricity Generating Board, which is something we need to have back. Mm. Because it wasn't just that they were providing power for the country, be it nuclear or, in that case, there were 10 big coal-fired power stations around the country. But they used really good architects and really good landscape designers. And by landscape, I don't just mean they put a few flowers in front of the, uh, of, uh, of the office there. They considered miles around these power stations, how they would sit in the landscape, um, where stands of trees might be, uh, because they appreciated that sculptural quality back at the time. And I know this, uh, not least because uh, back in 2000-and-something, towards the start of the century, I went on a tour of Drax Power Station. Now, Drax is that one in North Yorkshire, coal-fired. Now it burns uh, biomass, which is basically it's the world's biggest log burner. And I went up the chimney. It was just coal-fired then. And you can stand on top and look down into the cooling tower, see the turbines, see you know how the whole thing works. And back then, I thought, God, this is just amazing. It is just an extraordinary object in the landscape. Um, it's still working. There's now only three of those big coal-fired power stations left, which are left in reserve, generally speaking. Drax is unusual because it's burning biomass, but so that continues. But... Um, other power stations are in the last few years of their life. So what the society was saying there was that these are amazing things to look at. Please, unlike you know, like the coal mining industry where everything was swept away, almost nothing, no fragments remain to remind you that those places once existed. Please, let's just keep the best of those. Maybe just one good power station with those cooling towers would be great to keep and maybe reuse in the way that they have done, I think um, there is this problem. What do you use a cooling tower for? And the answer is you can't use it for very much. They're an amazing structure, hyperbolic paraboloid, easy for me to say, uh, but they're about seven inches thick, the concrete, and they're enormous. But what that means is you can't knock holes in them, you can't put floors in them, you can't turn them into lovely sort of office blocks or anything like that. Wouldn't wouldn't work. You could, however, construct something inside them and you could do what has happened in Germany, for instance, where they make a kind of fun park yeah. around the bottom of them and they have bungee jumps and things going on inside them and they string sort of walkways across the top and it becomes an amazing sort of thing and they have climbing walls and that that you can do. But you can't knock them about too much. So that's why that exhibition is up. It's saying we're now down to three. They're going out of commission. They will just flatten them. Yeah. 
please, you know, they're, they're amazing places. Please just keep one. Keep keep some of those towers and think of them as part of a new development. Someone once told me that um, Henry Moore, the uh, the sculptor, had been involved in the uh, composition of at least one of these cooling towers. Is that right? I had I, I had heard that room, but I couldn't say which one it was. But they certainly had um, some of the, 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 the top architects of the time um, advising on them. And, and we, we've got a great quote from Anthony Gormley, have we not, Finn? Yeah, we, ha- we have a quote from uh, Gormley. It says, uh, uh, Cooling towers are a man-made volcano, a wonderful relic of the Carbon Age, a memorial to our 200-year-long romance with the second law of thermodynamics. Cooling towers are part of this story, yet they are being destroyed with little thought. For me, they are the 20th century equivalents of Stonehenge, not only only are they extraordinarily beautiful, they are powerful markers in time and space that point towards the intertwined relationship between energy, labour and society in our species, recent past. Yeah, and he was uh, talking about Drax, uh, particularly at that point when, it, when he said that. And so I, when I did my Sunday Times piece about Drax, nobody could understand at that time, in about 2004 or whenever, why I would want to do it. They were slightly baffled as to why I wanted to do this this article about Drax Power Station. But it was because of that, and I quoted Gormley in it at the time, because it's just self-evident if you see it. But the view then, and I think the view often still is now, it's just some old dirty power station there, knock it down, build some persimmon homes there, you know. Yeah, my main memory of power stations is trying to break into them as part of the climate movement and sort of shut them down. Uh, but I, I do kind of totally take the point that they, they are sort of extraordinary things and are clearly at risk of demolition. So this show at Margaret Howell's uh, flagship store uh, on Wigmore Street, uh, it's on until the 18th of June. It's something certainly something I will hope to check out when I can. Clearly, I have a lot to learn. Hugh, it's been an immense pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Um, Where can our listeners kind of keep up with your adventures? Where should they follow you on social media? They should follow me on all the usual socials, Finn. (laughs) And of course, read my book about architecture. Fantastic. Uh, Thank you and see you next time. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health 
Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.